Welcome to the Freedom City Church podcast, a podcast designed to help your faith thrive. We hope you enjoy today's message. So last week we spoke about the way of the kingdom, and I, I think that it was a bit of a, it was a good message last week. I think that people were impacted by it because I was impacted when I was writing it. But I think that what we have to understand about the way of the kingdom is that for there to be the way, the kingdom of God saying, John the Baptist says, prepare ye the way of the kingdom, or prepare ye the way the kingdom of God is coming, there has to be a counter kingdom. There has to be a current kingdom or an old kingdom that the people were living in. For something new to come, the old has to exist. And so what we have is we have this understanding that the Roman Empire was prevalent during that time. And who, who's ever seen Asterix and Obelix, you know, that, that show? You know, the Roman Empire, they were the powerful kingdom. They were all roads lead to Rome. You know, they were influential in setting up and establishing a lot of what we understand of our Western context nowadays. But when they actually came in and took over as the, the ruling empire, a period of time called the Pax Romana came into play. Pax Romana basically means Roman peace. Roman peace. So there's this peace that the Roman Empire brought and stability which lasted over 200 years and it was into which Jesus was born. So Jesus wasn't born into the kingdom of God. He was born into the Roman Empire. He wasn't born into the liberal or the labor, democratic or republican. He was born into the Roman Empire. So that was the ruling empire of the time. What we have to understand in a hermeneutical sense, like a step back, look at the Bible. How does this, what does this mean contextually and how does this apply to my life? It doesn't represent just that everyone from Italy is the Antichrist. So what it represents, what it represents is the ruling empire of the time was that which was opposed to the kingdom of God. So go back a few, how many years, you've got the Egyptian empire, the pharaohs. Go back, Babylonian. You know, it's like you've got the, this opposition, opposing empire or opposing kingdom. The thing about the Roman empire was that the way that they went about their business was to overthrow, overpower, and to distract from real issues within their kingdom, within their empire. And by doing that, they're able to impose their characteristics and distinctives of their own culture upon the different cultures there. So, like any culture, like any kingdom, there is a way to maintain power. The kingdom, the Roman Empire, just did it through violence. They did it through force. They did it through fear, through overthrowing, and they created something. They created Roman peace. But don't you think that's quite contradictory that peace could be found through violence? All my ethics majors just shut up. You know, it's like, because you're wrong. So <laughs> there's no ethics majors here. Right? So I'm just, I'm just angry. So it's, what they created was Patromana, and within Patromana, they actually created a scheme called Bread Circus Empire. And if you were here last week, I explained what that was. Basically, bread, they distracted people from their um, poverty and the lack of food 
by giving free food out to everyone. We give you free grain, so we seem like we're we're good, we're a good empire, a good kingdom. Then circus, they created like this scheme where they just entertain people, free entertainment. That's where a lot of gladiators, that's where a lot of um, where people were uh, Christians were persecuted, actually thrown to the lions and whatnot. That was free entertainment for everyone. So the Roman Empire distracted people from their relative poverty and their lack of actual peace by giving them bread and circus. And then the final thing was empire, which is the, what we've been talking about, the empire overthrows uh, through violence. They overthrew different countries and towns and cities through violence. So the Roman Empire could be described as bread, circus, and empire. A lot more to it, but this, this is just a summary from last week. But what we read in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, is we read in the temptation of Jesus where he goes to the desert. And when he's in the desert for 40 days before, uh, fasting, after that time, Satan comes and tempted, tempts him. And do you know what the first thing that he, he tempted him with was? Bread. He says, Eat, turn these stones into bread. Jesus withstood that temptation. The second temptation was service. Throw yourself off this building for everyone to see and command the angels to catch you. Jesus said, no, do not test the Lord your God. He said, bread, circus, and the third temptation was empire. Everything that you see before you, it's like Lion King. Everything that the light touches. You know, everything that you see before you can be yours. Just bow down before me. Jesus said no. Because the path to the kingdom is not through empire, through violence, through power, but through the cross, through forgiveness, through love. Isn't that powerful? We could probably stop there. But I have 20 pages left up in here. So, so what Jesus did then was he went straight into, all right, I have withstood the temptation of the kingdom the Roman Empire. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to counter you. Disciples, hey, follow me. Breaks the Jewish tradition by, uh, if you're here for our Rabbi and Talmudim series, breaks the tradition saying, you follow me. Basically, you don't have to study to be one. You just have to be, have breath in your lungs. Follow me. If you And they followed him, this rabbi, this renowned teacher, this um, recognized and honored teacher. So it's just to a to fisherman. Follow me, and they, they followed him. So one, he breaks Jewish tradition. Then what he goes and does is he sits with his disciples, his Talmudim, apprentices, on a mountain and shares a sermon to them. A lot of people just happen to be watching. But his teaching was to them. And he's kind of like, he knows that they're watching. So he's making a point here. That I'm teaching you the way of the kingdom, which is counter to the way of the Roman Empire, a.k.a. the world. There is a way that you and I live, are called to live, that is different to the way that the world is called to live. There's a way that we are called, we are called to a greater standard through the Holy Spirit. Because we all know that we're fallible, we're sinful, we're broken. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus Christ's death and sacrifice on the cross, we can live an empowered life, a pure life, 
a life that shows that there is a better way. You know, it's, I know a lot of people will come to to a point in their life where they're just like, I'm praying more, I'm trying more, I'm, I'm taking communion every day. And they're, they're trying and they're, they're like, oh, I just need to do better, I just need to do better. But there's an actual point in time where we have to realize that the, the way starts with abiding with Jesus. John 15, 15. Abide in the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're trying to do anything separate from God, you will come to an end. There will be a point in time where you're like, I tried it, it didn't work. All right, there must be a different way. And that's where bread, circus, and empire might slip in and start sneaking in. Where you start actually, in the empire side of it, you start using power, you start using aggression, or you start imposing yourself on people a little bit more. Or with the circus, you start saying, actually, I need to, I said this last week, I need to go to a church that has smoke machines. Because <laughs> this little church, where they keep stuffing up with the microphones and stuff. It's just not doing it for me anymore. I'm not entertained. And maybe you're just like, well, I just need material things. If I have material things, I will be fine. What we have is we have a better way. We have a better way to live. We have, and in, in the sermon, we actually have a picture of something called the Beatitudes. And the attitudes that should be. Your attitude has so much to do. It's so important in life. Who, who knows someone or, or has been someone who walks into a room and their just attitude just changes the room? Jesus' attitude came. He came in and he changed the room. He changed what was going on because he is a good God but he has a better way for us. So we're just going to pick up on three Beatitudes today. Last week I spoke about the poor in spirit. And the poor in spirit has a couple of understandings. So what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to treat you like adults. And I'm going to give you questions to answer. I'm not going to actually tell you the answer. I might present a picture that I'm going to say you go home and you wrestle with this. Because a sermon... The best sermons are not ones that you agree with or disagree with, but ones that you wrestle with. So I'm going to present a few pictures to you today, a few understandings. Does that sound good? All right. Say to, you, say to the person next to you, have a better attitude. <laughs> Wife, husband, friend. Hey! Where are we up to? Honestly, I'm still on my first page. <laughs> Let's go to Matthew, uh, the, the Beatitudes. Just go to the next slide, see where I'm at. All right, fantastic. The word for blessed, Kat Macarios, in the name of Jesus. Macarios means happy, but this is not just happy, happy, like Pharrell happy. This is like, this is an internal joy that is not impacted by circumstance. It's a joy that is within itself. You know, this this stupid example, but this Malteser is good by itself. It doesn't have to be eaten for it to be enjoyed. By itself, it is good. By itself. But we can take it in and actually enjoy it ourselves. 
So this whole idea of it's not impacted by anything outside of it, within itself. Because what we do all the time, within our joy, we put ourselves into the situation and we create outcome-based things. Whereas with something within itself does not be, is not defined by us. So joy in itself is not defined by what's going wrong in your life. Sorry. Joy is joy because it's the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is joy that's something that we can have. And then when we take it, it's like, oh, this is not good. No, it is good because it's not determined by your circumstance. Joy is joy within itself. So when you say blessed, he means happy, which means that joy is completely independent of all chances and changes of life. And then we go into this one. Blessed, joyful, separate from circumstances are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This, this beatitude seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? You're joyful, you're happy, it doesn't depend. It is, you're joyful, you're happy for those who mourn. It seems like a contradiction, but let's unpack it a little bit. Because when we're saying you're joyful, you're happy, there is, you shall be comforted, promise added to the end of it. But the, the goal here is not to become a mournful person. The goal is not to become a mournful person, but once again, the Beatitudes are an announcement of the way of the kingdom. So let me explain that a little bit. When Jesus is saying, all right, the Beatitudes, these are the Beatitudes, this is the kingdom of God that's coming. He's not saying, now this is your goal to become mournful, to become poor in spirit. This is not the goal. This is just how things will be because the way that the culture and the way of the world that it was set up beforehand was that it was set up to for the people who were winning, who were rich, who were in power. It was set up for people who were in control, the elite, the religious elite. Everything was tailored towards them. So when Jesus is coming, he's saying that actually things are changing. And those who mourn, the kingdom is for you too. Like, I'll get to this right now actually, because I was saying that overwhelming culture of the time, there's something called Greco-Roman Stoicism. Who's ever heard of that? Greco-Roman Stoicism. This was permeating society and culture. And Stoicism emphasizes rationalism and logic. It's commonly considered to be the opposite of Epicureanism, which is seen as promoting feeling and comfort. So Epicureanism teaches, one to, teaches us to arrange our life in such a way that is completely free of stress. This is actually including the stress that is brought by overindulgence and pleasure seeking. Who thought you could be stressed by overindulging too much? Well, let's maybe eat too much, eat too much chocolate, then all of a sudden like my pants don't fit. You know, it's like stress is everywhere. You know, it's like but Epicureanism, and I'm not saying it is we have to be Epicureanists and go to Crown all the time. Now, what I'm saying is that this is this is the the opposing thing that they were saying that Stoicism was there, and they were saying that you, you align your expectations with the logos, the word, the natural sorry logos, the natural law of the cosmos, and don't worry about the rest. Basically, 
According to ancient Stoics, these Greco-Roman philosophers making a comeback, they came back as preachers of practical wisdom in a self-help world. There is a correct answer to the question of how we should say like mourn in this, this understanding. What would a Greco-Roman Stoicism philosopher say to how do you mourn? You don't. You just get on with it. It is what it is. So what Jesus is saying, he's, a, he's aware of the societal construct where Greco-Roman Stoicism is, oh, if you just go back one, <laughs> Quill, everyone's looking at the screen and not me. It's not about me. What's happening is this, this Greco-Roman Stoicism is permeating society and culture, teaching people, Jewish people, Gentiles, Galileans, all right, actually the, the right way to go around things of mourning and grief and comfort is just don't do it. It is what it is. You know, I heard a story about someone, a Jewish lady got invited to a Christian wedding. And at the Christian wedding, they're like, wear bright colors and celebrate because we want to celebrate the life of our, our friend and our son. And, and the Jewish lady rocked up to the wedding and was like, why? This is really sad. Why are you celebrating something that should be grieved? What? Funeral. <laughs> Funeral. Rocked up to this. Actually, sometimes, some people don't like weddings. You know, so. Rocked up to this funeral. That changes it a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. They rocked up to this funeral and they're saying, why are you celebrating at this funeral? <laughs> we can edit that. So. Try in the message. Wedding, funeral. <laughs> so. Yeah, why are you celebrating at something that's meant to be grieved? And that's Greco Roman Stoicism that has bled through down into our own society now that says that, just get on with it. Why should you grieve? Why should you feel? Why should you mourn? But if you actually look at the Jewish customs, and this is what Jesus is talking about here, because he's talking to Jewish people. He's aware of it. He's talking about the opposing culture and kingdom that is coming. Because mourning customs for Jews, Jewish people, are meant, this is, this is important. Mourning customs are meant to ease the loneliness of loss through community involvement. This is done through rituals which guide the mourners during a time when thoughts and feelings may be confusing or both vary widely moment to moment. It provides a comforting structure that allows the mourning to proceed along established lines while the surrounding community acts as a support group. This is what they have established. And then the Greco-Roman thinking says, just don't do it. So you've got a whole bunch of people who aren't mourning, mourning about anything. They're not grieving, they're saying, well, actually, to be part of this society, I have to forego the things that I knew, what, what has been put in place for me. But that's a, I think that's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. You mourn and we will surround you. Yet society was saying, give up mourning and grieving in community for logic and pragmatism. You know, the question though we go on and say is what are they mourning about? And a lot of scholars say that the people who agree with God about the evil of their own hearts can attain an enviable state of blessedness due to the comfort they receive communion with the Holy Spirit. 
So sin. Sin is one of these things that we encourage to mourn. In my own life, my own brokenness, I'm encouraged to, to mourn this. To mourn this, my broken state. Because those who hide their sin or try to justify it before God can never know the comfort that comes from a pure heart, as Matthew talks, Jesus talks about in Matthew 5 eight. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Comforter, the Spirit that comforts those who are honest about their own sin and humble enough to ask for forgiveness and healing. But the thing about grief and mourning over sin is that it's not a destination. It is a path. I don't live my life in this place where I'm constantly mourning about how stupid and broken and sinful I am, but it's a pathway to the freedom and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Where if, I'm, if you're coming to a road and I say, you're not allowed to go down that road, and you're like, but my house is down there. It's like, you can't go down that road. This is the way you do it this way now. What Jesus is saying is that you want, you need to mourn. Mourn your sin, mourn the things in your life, the brokenness, because it's not just sin. There's a duality here. There's life. When we lose people, when we struggle, when we fail, we, do, we are called to mourn because sin in itself is not just, oh, you're a sinner, but sin is sinful nature, how the world has been impacted by sin. We look around us and we see people dying, we see people broken, we see people hurting each other. And we can say, all right, that person has sin in their life, or we can say that the world was impacted by sin. So what God is, Jesus is saying here is that let us mourn, let us grieve, let us do it in community. Let's not hide away from it and just say, everything's all right, where your house is on fire. No, let's actually look at it and say, blessed are those who actually see their need for Christ. Blessed are those who actually see that and admit, I'm broken, the world is broken, therefore I will grieve and I will mourn a community. But as a pathway, it's not a destination. I will walk this path of grief whenever I need to walk this path of grief. But my destination is not there. If I can learn to mourn my sin, my brokenness, to pour myself out before God, He promises comfort. As well as sin, we have to recognize God just actually wants to comfort you. You know, Jesus overcame sin, but there's still a brokenness within ourselves, a tendency towards the things of the flesh. That's a, that's a, a lifelong journey that we, will, we go on. But in God's kingdom, he will comfort those who mourn. There's a healthy duality here. And this is what I'm saying about wrestling. You need to wrestle with this. Because I know, and I've heard this for many times, in many sermons, I just decided I'm going to do a bit more study on these things that I'm going into. Not saying that other people didn't, but I realize that there's more to it. Because the next slide, please, Quill. Because what I put up here is there's actually Jesus preached the Beatitudes in Aramaic. Whereas a lot of people think it was in, in Greek. I was like, nah, it was in Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic within his ministry. Therefore, we have to look at what he's saying to the Jews, to his disciples, because they were hearing it in Aramaic as well. There, there are different translations for what he said. And so it's, I'm not going to say just throw a dart and choose the one that you want. But what I'm going to say is let's think a little laterally here and realize that the kingdom of God is not just about mourning over sin because that's a finger pointing at you, at, at your shame. What it's actually saying is that there's 
that in the kingdom of God, I want to announce to you that there's a different way. The Jews and the Roman Empire would condemn people. The Jews, like, you'd have to go every year and, and kill an animal for a sacrifice. And you'd have to make sure that animal wasn't blemished on the way. And if it was blemished, you'd have to buy one at an extortionate rate to be able to make sure that you can be sanctified or you can, your sin can be covered. What God's saying here is, yes, mourn your sin, but walk that path to Jesus. And when you walk that path, look at the new kingdom that I'm establishing and actually see here that there's a different understanding of the, the ones that have been translated into Latin and into English into what we understand now. So in the Aramaic, the word blessed actually means ripe, which is fun. Ripe are those who feel, feel at loose ends, coming back apart at the seams. They shall be knit back together within. Blessed are those in turmoil and confusion. They shall be united inside. <laughs> Does that change it a little bit for you? I know you might have heard some preaching before. I'm asking you to look wider here. Greek, happy are those who mourn. They will be called to God's side. Fortunate are those who lament. They will hear my God's voice. The message, because we all love the message. You're blessed when you feel when you've you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. And the one that um a lot of people um, have actually quoted is tuned to the source of those feeling deeply confused for life they shall be returned from their wandering the story of the prodigal son confused in life there's something better goes and returns from their wandering you know blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted blessed are those who mourn in community for they shall be comforted by God and by others blessed are you because God leaves the 99 to go after the one. Even when you're confused in life and you're wondering, you're, he's never left you. God is good. We have to understand how good he is. And when we read these things, we need to read it. Read it in a, a different light. Because often what we do is we read it through a Calvinistic view that condemns us, condemns us, condemns us, says we're bad people, that we're depraved. There's, there's truth to that, but there's also a major truth that overwhelms that through Jesus. It says, if I say you're good, you're good. If I have died on the cross, it's not about what you do wrong, but it's what I do right. After my heart attack, I actually, I had to grieve my mortality. Who would have thought that? A 31-year-old guy, Grieving the fact that he can't play sport the way that he used to. Grieving the fact that I don't know if I'm going to live forever. You know, I don't know if I'm going to live to see my kids get married. I don't know if I'm going to live, how long I'll live. But I had to grieve that and I, I grieved it. I had, Stuart came alongside me and I sat with Stuart and I cried. People came alongside me and we mourned together. God is encouraging us to be people are true with our emotions, with our feelings, but also tr understanding that he is above it all, that he has made a way. Imagine if, if we could be people that instead of saying, 
How you doing, ma'am? Oh, good. I actually walked up and said, how you doing? I actually really need help right now. I need something's happened in my life. If we can't do that at church, what are we doing? If we can't do that in godly community, what are we doing? We're all just pretending. I'm struggling in this area of my life. Hey, let me come alongside you and walk with you. Let me mourn with you that actually you are struggling, but let me support you as you walk this path. I think God is saying, Jesus is saying something here that's actually causing the the Pharisees and the Sadducees to stand up and go, hold up, this is not what we're used to. This is not what we're used to. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I love meekness. It's one of my favorite words in the Bible, to be honest. Because a lot of people link it and make it synonymous with being weak and submissive. You are meek. You're weak. You know, the the definition in in the dictionary is quite gentle and easily imposed on. Submissive. And the example they gave was she brought her meek little husband along. <laughs> Next does that every week to church. <laughs> but once again, the English language has failed us. It has failed us once again. Because we understand it in a derogatory way. And it's caused us to lose the true meaning of the word. And we misunderstand this beatitude. In the vocabulary of ancient Greek, and this has ancient Greek and Aramaic do link up. There is a... a there's a, a parallel, it correlates quite well, the Aramaic and the Greek. The meek person was not passive or easily pushed around. The main idea behind the word meek was strength under control, like a strong stallion that was trained to do a job instead of running wild. Meg brings her strong little stallion along to church every week. You know, my strength under control, power under control. What did the Roman Empire not have? Power under control. They had power that controlled. We have to understand that Jesus is making a point here. He's saying, this is your your hand. I'll show you my hand. The word prowess has been translated in English to, to, to meek. And there's an old English term called making a horse. This does not mean to strip the power from a horse, but rather to harness the horse's power from a state of wild independence to one of loyalty, so that the horse could be used as the master of the horse instead intended. In Aramaic, the word uh, make is literally translated to soften what is rigid inside. To, to have softened inside what is rigid. Maybe in your life, you have an attitude, you have a thought, or these people can't come to church. That's not how you you worship God. Actually, no, you you can't say or watch these things. You can't, you can't, you can't. And you become rigid and you start judging people. What Jesus is saying is that when you're meek, it has softened on the inside what is rigid. Who was rigid in the Bible? The Pharisees, the Sadducees. 613 laws they had. 
in between the New Testament and the Old Testament, the 400 years of silence, they didn't hear God, so they created 613 laws, most of them oppressing women. We have to understand here that Jesus is saying, when you are meek, you will inherit the earth. Jesus was meek. Philippians 2, 6-8, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Did he have power? Yes. Did he have divinity? Yes. Did he choose to be contained for the, for the sake of the world? Yes. Meekness. Just because you can, it doesn't mean you should. Make. Well, we submit to God's will. God, should, should I do it? No. Okay, I'm not going to do it. Meekness. Humility. Are you submitting your intelligence, your strength, your talents, and even your weaknesses to do the will of the Heavenly Father? Because inheritance is a family term. Those who are meek, those who are children of God, inherit the earth, which basically means to find the tension of, of heaven in the now. The peace of God, not the pseudo-peace of the Roman Empire, but the peace of God in the now. In your marriage, in your friendships, in the way that you treat people. I can say that makes my marriage is the best it's ever been. But it's a path that we're walking. And it's a, there's, a, there's a point that we were, where we had to work through things. You know, I want the peace and the reality of the kingdom of God all my life, the way that I treat anyone, the way that I treat strangers who walks in on off the street, maybe they've got the hat to the side and they're wearing a Dockers jersey. I'm like, how can I love that person, God? <laughs> and God's like, you can, because that is the way of the kingdom. I want to be someone who knows the love and the peace of God in my now. And I'm not just waiting to get to heaven for it to be a reality. Don't hold off something that's meant to be now for eternity. Wrestle with that. Cheer. Next slide, please, Quill. Right for those who soften what is rigid inside and out, they shall be open to receive strength and power, the natural inheritance from God. Here are those who wept. Inwardly with the pain of oppressed desire, they shall be renewed in sympathy with nature. Aligned with the one who are with the one are the humble, those who submitted to God's will, they shall be gifted with the productivity of the earth. Yet we just read, enriched are the gentle in spirit, for they will receive good life with giving land. Fortunate are those not arrogant or domineering, for they will have their place to stand, their place to live richly. There's so much more to this that we need to wrestle with, go away and study. And the last one. As I finish up here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus starts and ends with the heart. Everything is about your heart, your heart attitude, your connection to him, the Holy Spirit in you. Everything is about the heart because what happens on the inside is meant to manifest on the outside. If you, 
if you're doing something purely from an external strength or point of view, that will that has a time limit. Whereas if you look at the heart, that will that's eternal. That's something that God pours into, and He and He empowers us. So drawing from the Old Testament, the, Jesus uh, is describing the downtrodden and oppressed. Uh, language and concepts in this attitude and this beatitude. Those who are uh, li- those listening were living under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. They experienced excessive tax- taxation, denied freedoms, and persecutions. You know, so these people were po- finding poverty, and this is the whole bread part again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We're saying, if you hunger and thirst, you will be satisfied. Whereas Jesus inserts this part and says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. And he's basically giving a, a forehand or backhand to the, to the Roman Empire, the bread part of, of that temptation to Jesus. And Jesus, his audience were mainly Galileans who were not liked by the rest of the Jewish community. They were lower class citizens. They were looked down upon. And I can tell you that sometimes people walk into a room and the first thing that we do is we pull our bag closer. We go and talk to someone else that we know. I can tell you we do it all the time. Someone who, who doesn't look as, as accomplished as us or doesn't look as, they look a little bit scruffy. There's a part within us that is always going to be like, uh, I'll go to the other side of the room. Uh, actually, I'm not comfortable here. You know, the Galileans who were watching on to, with the disciples, I can tell you that they were looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees saying, if that's righteousness, if the way that they treat me is righteousness, I don't want that. Have you ever thought that Maybe the way that we treat people, they're like, if that's your Christianity, I don't want it. If that's your Jesus, I'm going to go to Buddhism. They treat people better there. If this is our version of Christianity, this is our version of righteousness, what are people saying? Because the religious leaders were outwardly righteous, but inwardly sinful and corrupt. What Jesus is doing here is lengthening the distance between God and man and addressing the self-righteousness of the Pharisees as well as the issue of the heart of the people in the crowd. He's raising the bar and addressing the issue of the heart. He's presenting to the crowd that there is one true righteousness that's found in the cross. It's found in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one that will will cause them to never be hungry or thirsty again. Man should not live by bread alone. Come to me and drink, and you will, your your thirst will be quenched. You'll never be thirst again. He gives us this example, but he's doing it in comparison with the Sadducees, the the, the way of the Roman Empire, and saying, "Hey, you've got a way, and that this." champions people who feel who stand elite to other people this champions people who look down on other people this way of the kingdom says that i am better than you whereas the way of the kingdom of god basically says that 
Righteousness is being in right relationship with God, which creates right relationship with others. Because the next beatitude that we go into is the beatitude of mercy. When you seek righteousness, you will become merciful. When you are righteous, you will be merciful. The more you know God, the more you will love other people. The more you know the love of God, the more you will love other people. And I think what we, we struggle with is that this becomes an idea of we have to become this. Was actually what Jesus is saying. This is an announcement of how it's going to be in the kingdom. Don't try and become poor in spirit. Don't try and become these things. Just know me. Abide in the vine and I will do the rest. John 15, 15. It's not about behavior modification. It's about internal transformation. And that doesn't happen by setting a goal and becoming that goal. The fruit of the Spirit is not commands. They're just fruits of the Spirit. Keep and walk with the Spirit and the fruit will come. Are you in step with the Spirit? When was the last time that you prayed to God? When was the last time you said, God, I just need you? I'm not satisfied by this world. I just need you. The Beatitudes are the attitudes to be, the things we that can be, but the things, the way that we get there is the pathway of the kingdom, which is knowing God, becoming like him. The last, last description here. Next slide, please, girl. So we're fortunate of those who crave and long for a good place with God, they will find it. You're blessed when you work up a good appetite for God. Come on. Here's the food and the drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. We love a bit of Eugene Peterson in the message. His makes it so simple. Healthy are those who turn their mouth to receive a new birth of universal stability. They shall be encircled by the birth of a new society. This sounds a little bit new agey, but this is Aramaic. This is Aramaic translation. Healed are those who persistently feel inside. If only I could feel find new strength and clear purpose on which to base my life. They shall be embraced by birthing power. This is what I'm saying. Look at this. And you pick and you can pick and choose which one you want. A lot of the ones that we pick and choose are often self-deprecating, self-doubting, punishment ones, because that's the way that we've been grown up, the way we've grown up in the society and the churches that we've grown up. God is so much better and bigger. Holy Spirit is so much more transformative and, and sanctifying than we realize. It's never been about our behavior modification. It's always been about the internal transformation that happens when we go, when we abide in the vine. I know that's a lot of information there, but I want to leave you with a few questions and I'll pray for you. Is there anything in your life that you need to mourn about? Sin, lost pain. Are you willing to mourn in community? Is there anything rigid inside of you that needs to be softened? Maybe attitudes, beliefs, preconceptions. Maybe I didn't say the name of Jesus enough and you're like, Andrew, you should have said, should have said the name of Jesus more. Maybe I said something that was a little bit wacky. You're like, Andrew, just give me an answer. Don't give me questions. 
What is what inside of you right now? I want to ask a question as I'm preaching this. What inside of you right now reacted poorly? I'm not saying that I'm God's mouthpiece. What what I will say is that God always speaks to you, and He'll use a donkey to speak to you. He might have used my message today to point out an attitude or a preconception or belief in your life that needs to change. Do you actively seek to know God, allowing him to speak in the different areas of your life, bringing comfort and correction? And the final question before I pray for you, is your soul satisfied in its current state? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you that you're bigger than a book, that what you teach us and what you show us is amazing. But I pray that you would speak to every individual here. Lord, I pray that you would provoke questions and, and seeking. I pray that you would you cause something to stir within us. Maybe it's preconceived idea, or maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's mourning that we haven't fully walked that path of mourning yet. But I just pray that we will be open to your spirit, to your truth, and to your guidance. Holy Spirit, you are the comforter, and we seek that. Jesus, you are the Savior, and we celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Freedom City Podcast. If there is any way that we can help you survive and thrive in your everyday life, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd want to know more about who we are, just head to www.freedomcityfremantle.com. Until next time, take care.